Välkommen till Freuds Toolbox, skolans inspirationspodd med fokus på känslor, relationer, lärande och ledarskap. Tillsammans med Kenneth Freud får du inspireras av och lära av nationellt och internationellt ledande experter på evidensbaserat lärande och ledarskap. Hi everyone, the talk today will be about how to optimize learning in schools in different way, learning strategies and everything you can use to, to make uh, our students feel well in school and uh, achieve academic excellence from their perspective, of course. Uh, today we will have so much world excellence and brilliance in different areas of learning together in the same meeting, so for me it's like Uh, a little kid at Christmas so I'm so excited about this and I know that all you that will be viewers will be that as well as you start learning what people will have in front of us and uh, to not <clears throat> put any pressure on you I have no demand, demands at all of you just sky high expectations uh, but I will let each one of you introduce yourself and I think we, we start with Efrat <laughs> Okay, thank you so much. Um, so briefly, um, my background is in uh, cognitive neuroscience, and I'm also a certified science teacher, but my main work focuses on bridging and communicating the science of learning um, to people who teach in the most uh, broad um, way. Uh, I work in the Israel National Institute for um, Research and program, program Development in Teachers' Education. Uh, and there I work with both teachers and people who teach teachers um, on implementing what we know and from research and specifically in digital pedagogy. Um, and just to say that I'm very honored to sit uh, to the same uh, virtual table with uh, some of the giants uh, on, the on the shoulder of, of whom uh, I stand. So it's uh, really a pleasure. Thank you so much. And then we move on to Elizabeth. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Bjork. Uh, I'm a professor at the at the at UCLA or University of California, Los Angeles, uh, in the cognitive area. And um, I uh, I've done a lot of different kinds of research in my past, including some developmental. But I uh, and my, my main focus has been on human learning and memory. And uh, as Bob says, how Bob will probably talk about this, but we're particularly interested in the role that forgetting plays in an adaptive me human memory system. And we've taken um, findings, focus, a lot of our research of late has focused on findings from the that have been obtained in the in the laboratory about how we think, how we learn, how we remember, and can we take those principles and apply them to learning in the classroom or in training in general? 
Okay, thank you. And I continue based on how I can see you on the screen. So I take Robert next. Yes, I'm uh, Robert Bjork, best known as the husband of Elizabeth Bjork. <laughs> and uh, the Bjork, Bjork reflects the Scandinavian background. My uh, So my father's father was from Sweden and my mother was from Norway. And then they immigrated to Minnesota. But in any case... Uh, at least in recent years, my primary focus of research has been on how people learn versus how they think they learn and what the implications of that are for managing your your own learning and for things like teaching and uh, structuring courses and so on. Okay, thank you, Robert. And then we move on to Dylan. Thanks, Kenneth. Um, Dylan William, a former high school math and science teacher, then became an academic and uh, for a while a university administrator. And then a, I sort of describe myself as a recovering psychometrician. But my work <laughs> these days is really very much similar to the kinds of work that Elizabeth and Robert talked about and, and, and had talked about as well, which is how do we take the findings from science and scale them up? So my major interest is not doing boutique work in, you know, 20 or 30 classrooms. My focus is on how can we get this happening in 300,000 classrooms in the UK? How we get it ha happening in 2 million classrooms in the US? And I think there's not enough people thinking about problems of scale when we're thinking about improving education. It's easy to do some small scale work. It's very hard to scale up. Great point. Yeah, great point. And now I think we lost Mark. Yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I hope we will be back in a few seconds then. Your comments about scaling up, I think, are very interesting, Dylan. And a lot a lot depends on that. So, uh, for example, in England, we've found that the whole system is more receptive to drawing on the kind of research we've done, whereas certain constraints in the U.S. seem to stop teachers from doing certain innovations. And uh, I think one aspect is that the end of the year performance in England is very important. So what we would call long-term retention right. is given higher weight than current performance in the classroom. Yeah. I think that's so powerful because when I first started working with teachers in the US, I realized that they were focusing on teaching kids to retain things until they took a unit test. Right. And the kids that, if you get an A on the unit test, you get to keep that A, even if you subsequently forget everything you knew to get the A. That's right. Teachers yeah. in England know that if you teach <clears throat> things in November that students have forgotten by next May, you might as well not have done it. So the design of the system, I think, focuses teachers on long-term retention. There's no point in getting kids through to a, a unit test or a semester test, they have to retain it for the whole year. And you, you've yeah, actually we, got to do more. Yeah. And thank you. A very nice overlap of the two of you. And now we say welcome to Mark. <laughs> yeah, we're, who um, is having internet challenges. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's nicely aligned with my work on emotions and emotional intelligence and regulations. And I'm dealing with my feelings, trying to be a participant. Um, 
My day job is I'm a professor at the Yale Child Study Center and the director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And um, my work primarily is in the space of social and emotional learning. And uh, I have an approach that I've been working on for now 25 years called Ruler that is in 5,000 schools across the United States and 27 other countries. And essentially my team, which is about 60 people now, are scientists who um, study emotions and well-being. And thank you. And, um, and then practitioners, former superintendents and principals of schools who work with us on how to translate that science into um, evidence-based practices to support both um, students, teachers, leaders, uh, and families. Okay, thank you. So everyone are introduced. And while you were away, Mark, we were getting into like memory functions and learning. So let's start there. Uh, based on your areas of expertise, all of you, can you suggest what to prioritize and focus on in teaching if we would help our students to remember the content they are supposed to learn? How should they learn and remember what they have learned during their time in school? The floor is open. Well, I think one broad principle is the degree to which you as a teacher can link up concepts and so on to any experiences those students, however young, have already had. Um, that just makes it more relevant and interesting, but as far as long-term retention and application, uh, I think it's crucial that that, that kind of uh, mapping. And I, I think it's one thing that... Um, teachers are often actually far more skillful at than, than some of us university researchers are. I think that's right. And I, I sometimes point, argue that we, we know that some teachers are more effective than others. And I think that the skill that those teachers often have is the ability to make students care about stuff they didn't care about when they walked into the classroom. I saw a nice example of that the other day, two teachers teaching Ohm's Law in a middle school science classroom. And one of them just stuck to the textbook. And the other asked the students to, to calculate the resistance of a 60-watt light bulb. Mm. And it was just, just a small idea. But the idea that what you're studying in the classroom might connect to something outside the classroom, I thought was quite a, a, a good way of sort of motivating that topic, that this is, this is real stuff. It's not just textbook stuff. And it's a small example, but I thought it was an attempt by the teacher to connect wow. content to the students' lives. Also, it's a task, given them that we found in the laboratory uh, that um, if you give students, even just ask them questions about a subject matter they haven't been introduced before to yet, sort of like of a pretest, what do you think the correct answer to this question would be? Or if you give them a task like you did, uh, they get then very interested in the then. And they seem then they learn and pay attention and do better on when you go to the formal presentation of what the lesson is all about because they have um, you somehow connected with their curiosity the kind of curiosity that little kids have you know what what is that what what you know why does the balloon go up in the air mm -hmm. so yeah I, I I categorize that as just making classroom work stickier and I think teachers needs to think very carefully about how you can actually prepare students activating prior knowledge and you know, just make the stuff more likely to stick in some way. But I think the other thing we mustn't lose sight of is something that Bob mentioned, 
which is that the fact is that our brains don't, our memories don't work in the way that most people think they do. And the fact that these processes are so counterintuitive, I think mm -hmm. is really important because most of the students that I've taught rely on folk models of memory, which we yeah. now know are inaccurate. And so, you know, this is what Daniel Willingham has been doing with his latest book, Outsmart Your Brain, giving our students a user manual for the brain because it doesn't work the way you think it does. Yeah, that the, the notion that somehow we're sort of a recording device and if yes. I just uh, mm -hmm. copy down what somebody says or repeat it to myself over and over again, somehow it'll write itself on me. Yeah. Yeah. I, think I, got, I think I got that phrase, your memory is not a hard disk from you, Bob, actually. <laughs> well, I think I, I use that all the time. To, I do tend to say the same things over and over again. I, yeah, yeah. I'll just add that. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, something? go ahead, Mark. Uh, what I was going to say is I think, you know, obviously I'm coming at it from the lens of emotion, is that I think it's a kind of twofold thing. One is the emotions that kids come into classrooms with, yeah. right? Are they you know, being yelled at by their parent before they come to school and they're activated and, you know, in a fight, flight, freeze kind of mode, um, which makes learning more difficult, as we all know, basic research there. But then, you know, my whole career began because of a teacher who inspired me, who was my uncle, who um, was inventing a curriculum in the 1970s that was taking social studies and teaching it through the lens of feelings. And what he found, he was a teacher in the Catskill Mountains of New York State in a farming community. And um, he was a band leader by night. And he was, so he was playing his trumpet at night and everybody's like feeling it. And they're all dancing and having fun. And then he goes to teach like the Roman oligarchy and everybody's like, <sighs> like, mm. and he was trying to figure out like, what's the difference in that classroom versus that classroom? <laughs> and essentially they weren't feeling it in the social studies classroom. And he started trying to think about how do you introduce content and material in a way that um, creates that connection. And so he started going through the curriculum and thinking, what are the feelings like? If what, what how did Julius Caesar feel, you know, in that particular piece, and how did people feel, you know, during these episodes? And then getting students to think about the emotions of the characters and then relate those emotions to their own experiences. So if they're talking about the oligarchy. How would it feel like if your football team had four captains and they want to talk about that and they would get excited about that. And then all of a sudden he'd say, well, that's exactly what the oligarchy was. And he would make the segue to academics through the personal. And that's basically how my whole career began and then started writing curriculum to help educators do that more organically. And we've shown that it works. It's so multidimensional. It's kind of easy to just, to sort of set aside some part of this complex thing and think I've got enough to do research on and so on. But I mean, when, when Mark's talking, you know, I mean, my reaction is, <clears throat> gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful to get into his world and just be a, a student and learn about these, these things are crucial, but it's easy to sort of ignore one component of, of this multi-component world. Yeah. Because there's only so much you can can do in your laboratory and so on. But I think that's a really important point, Bob, because I think that to, to get ahead as a scientist, as a, as a psychologist, as a as a publisher, as an academic, you have to reduce the problems that you're working on to ones where we can actually use the science to produce reasonably reliable knowledge. Mm -hmm. But of course, the teachers that we're working with 
have to face the multi-disciplinarity, the, the complexity of all these things. And so, you know, I have to, <clears throat> teachers have to make all this work in practice. And that's, that's why I think that we're, not, we're now seeing some very productive partnerships between researchers and teachers, because the teachers have to figure out how to balance the cognitive sciences of research with the stuff on emotion and recently with um, you know, the impacts of the, the, the novel coronavirus. You know, it just reminds you how complex this all is. But I don't think the researchers can be expected to deal with that complexity because otherwise they can't pursue uh, advancement of the discipline in their specialist field. I mean, we get we get requests from teachers, you know, uh, research showing that if you interleave instruction on the different topics, you'll that'll lead to better generalization, longer term memory. But then they want to know about the gritty nitty gritty. So yep. if you're going to interleave, how what should the chunk size be? What what <laughs> yes. or should the things you interleave be related to each, maximally related to each other or maximally independent of each other? And and they want to they want to know. Hey, and often we have no answers, no. you know, to say, well, that's an interesting research problem, which isn't always that satisfying to practitioners. Yeah, they would. We've often find people asking when we talk about desirable difficulties, for example, and how they uh, enhance learning. Um, they get very convinced that this will this will work and are real sort of very happy to have this new knowledge. But then they say, well, do you have a handbook so we can, that will demonstrate to us exactly how we can uh, integrate it into our classes and um, that, that we don't have. But just going back a little bit to um, the comment about uh, the comments about getting students involved and, and, giving them some way to relate from their own personal lives to now what you're going to be talking about. It doesn't have, it does, it doesn't seem like it has to be much. I mean, to, no. uh, I mean, the examples you gave were great, but they were also very creative. And, but you can, uh, we have a graduate student right now is doing her dissertation on how to use the internet, not to, as a memory crutch, but how to use it to actually enhance your learning and your memory. And she's finding that if you just, when you ask, when you give a students either a problem to work on or a question, like a trivia question to answer, um, that if you just force them to volunteer from their own memory some kind of response that should be relevant before they can access the information on the internet, then, um, they learn what they have uh, found on the internet better. And they also, interestingly, uh, enrich what they already knew because it gets, uh, it gets uh, enhanced in various ways. And, you know, when we use the internet, we often kind of search and go through paths. And, and that information also gets learned in a more um, effective way when you've tried yourself to volunteer an answer to this question or problem mm -hmm. uh, rather than just being allowed to access what the answer is on the internet immediately. So I think, uh, most, I think that's the most underused technique in teaching, actually. When I point out to teachers that if you just ask a question 
and make them commit to an answer, but don't tell them straight away whether the answer is correct or incorrect. Mm -hmm. They really want to find out, you know, they have skin in the game and it's such an easy technique to use. And it's, and it's so rarely used by teachers. It is, it is quite, quite uh, frustrating for me. Yeah, our colleague Jim Sigler here at UCLA did research on teaching of uh, like algebra in Japanese classrooms, U.S. German classrooms, and a big difference which he attributed to to higher achievement in the uh, Japanese classrooms was what was kind of rewarded, which was to say how you were approaching and trying to work on it, not whether you had the right answer. But in the U.S. classrooms, there's often a quick switch. You know, you the student gives the wrong answer, and they just switch. Okay, Jimmy, do you know? You know, like like not to think through the process. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You're all talking, and I'm thinking how important uh, the first point that you made about prior knowledge, and also the point, the idea that is uh, people not think very highly of this idea, especially in our times. All the knowledge is on the internet. The, the the known myth. Um, and prior knowledge is probably the most important um, aspect that we have to pay attention to. And I find it that whatever, whenever I teach my teacher students about just mm-hmm. every principle from cognitive science. So when we when it comes to what they should do in the classroom, it always comes comes back to, okay, but it depends what the student's prior knowledge is. Because if we say to challenge them, how much we have to challenge them it depends on whatever they know so i can i'm kind of happy that we started with this concept because whenever from whatever point you look at it emotional or cognitive or metacognitive it always comes back to this point that prior knowledge is the most important thing that you have to pay attention to uh, when you begin we, we, run into, we run into that in the context of desirable difficulties where people forget the desirable not <laughs> yeah. And, and say, well, you just make things hard on people. But, but I mean, that relevant to what you said, there's going to be an appropriate level of difficulty given prior knowledge, level of prior knowledge. You want, you want students to generate, for example, but if they're not equipped by virtue of their prior experience or instruction to even come close, they're going to have to be cues and things like that. Can I ask you about that, Bob? Because um, I've seen a lot of people using your work on desirable difficulties, yours and Elizabeth's, um, to justify the kind of minimally guided problem solving, the kind of thing that Richard Mayer is so critical of. And so I've I've tried to come up with a way of explaining to teachers that desirable difficulties aren't just any... Not all difficulties are desirable. (laughs) And so the way I've tried to frame it is by saying... The, the difficulties are desirable if they're related to retrieval. Things, in other words, things that are already in your memory. That's when it's desirable. But giving students no support in a completely open-ended problem um, is, is, I see, often described as a desirable difficulty. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. No, I think it's, uh, <laughs> that's very well said. And it just turns out, I mean, you know, way back when I, came up with that phrase i like the alliteration and stuff but it's (laughs) but it's uh it does people do forget what all is involved in the desirable thing and actually some of what you've done is clarified as as much as anything so um 
you know, it's it, you want students to generate, for example, but but how much cues they will need, depending on their prior knowledge and so on, is going to vary a huge amount. So so a skill of a teacher is, and some teachers I think are quite remarkable at that is to to phrase questions and stuff in a way that that a given student right. can, can do some generation. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was listening to Efrat the there. Um, you know, I, I think that this, this whole thing about, you know, prior knowledge, you know, I think David Ajibel said it all 50 years ago. Right. The single factor in single learning is what the learner already knows, ascertain this and teach accordingly. And because that's unpredictable, that's why that's what motivates my work on assessment. Find out where the students are before you try to teach them anything. And it's kind of it's kind of sad to me that this is not yet widely understood by teachers all over the world. You know, this this should be such a basic part of of teacher preparation. Well, one thing I would just add is that I think, well, in my work on teaching emotional intelligence, it's I think it's even more difficult because there's no criterion of correctness. Mm. And so that's very uncomfortable for people to teach something where there's no right answer, right? There's no right answer for which strategy each of us uses to regulate our feelings, right? It's based on our personality, our culture, our culture, our development, our family background. And, you know, there's, I mean, we have higher like criteria, which is like no harm to self or others. But um, other than that, you know, I'm actually in Delaware doing a training for principals today. And they really were stuck with that. Like, oh, so they're a teacher or a student might want to stand in the back of the room because they prefer to just be standing as opposed to sitting. But what if the teacher doesn't like the kids standing in their classroom? (laughs) That's a problem, right? Because that kid may just may need more movement in order to help them focus. Whereas someone else prefers to sit or whatever it might be. And uh, go ahead. I have a suggestion there, by the way, the the work of British economist Ronald Coase is I think very relevant here because he often we actually resolve these kinds of dilemmas by rights. The teacher has the right to tell the student to sit down, yeah, exactly to move. But Coase's solution is it's actually whichever is the least disruptive solution. So, how much does it upset the teacher or put them off their stride to have a student mm-hmm. put on the back? And if you once as soon as you see that the advantage to the student is yeah. much greater than the disadvantage to the teacher. And I think that provides a very nice framework for thinking about the resolution of these issues rather than getting into, you need to sit down because I told you to, another, yeah. which is often the attitude of teachers. Completely agree. Mark, does your work get into working with coaches and sports skills? Because yeah. in my experience, there's a whole range from coaches just simply doing awful things to, but, but at the best level, I think they create a kind of mental set in in athletes that very close to what we'd like our students to have in in the classroom. And uh, the repetition, right? Think about that. You know how much goes on when you're learning. You know, my other I taught martial arts for thirty years of my life, and so like getting a black belt in my martial art, it was like it's a lot of work and a lot of real world, you know, experiences. It wasn't just sort of like you don't when you're learning the martial arts, you don't say you know, all right, punch. <laughs> it's easy to block a punch when you tell someone to punch you. <laughs> it's not easy to block a punch when you're on the street and not expecting it. And I think 
oftentimes a lot of the the problems that we're presenting to children, especially in my work, they're presented in that kind of cold cognitive space, but they're needed in the hot space. And so the right when you think about how our brains operate in terms of responding to triggers, right? We learn like, here are my five ways I would deal with conflict. And then all of a sudden your spouse says, you know, like, I don't want to do that tonight. And you're like, what do you mean you don't want to do that? <laughs> and we're activated. And so I think that's a big challenge in, in, in the work that we do is that how it's learned is not where it's used. Right. And I, but I think that Bob makes a very important point about sports coaching because the best teaching I see is in sports coaching. Because, you know, math teachers teach, some kids get it, some kids don't. And the teacher says, well, maybe math isn't their subject. So they accept the failure of students. I don't know a single football coach who says, we've only got six good players this year. We're not going to bother playing football. The point is that they start with the players they've got and try to make the best team. So that whole idea of whether you think students can be successful, I think um, is often a, a barrier to mm. effective practices because certainly math and science teachers accept the accept too great a dispersion of success um, that I think is, is, is acceptable. And the sports context also involves kind of cooperative learning in a natural yeah. way. You know, you don't, yeah. you, whereas, whereas in educational context, I mean, there's been research on cooperative learning that makes it look very effective in some cases. Yeah. But, but it's not the, the default, not the standard way. Well, that's the nice thing about the work of the Johnson brothers and Bob Slavin. You get these two things, group goals and individual accountability. And you always get that in team sports. You know, if one student misses a tackle, the whole team's chances of winning are reduced, group goals, and everybody knows who missed the tackle, individual accountability. The trouble is, on the academic side, teachers often set up a group task in a way that two or three members of the group can do the work for the whole group. So, that, so yeah. that, that, that structure, uh, which is so present in the orchestra, the band, team sports, is so often lacking on the academic side. Yeah. That's why the so-called jigsaw puzzle uh, system for having students work together is so much better because yeah. it doesn't have the, the smart, outgoing students take over and do everything for everybody else. Right. Uh, but I was also just going to mention... Um, consistent with what a lot of this this prior background. Another thing that we found is that you do need to have a little bit of prior background. And, you know, so you want to have your students have enough that they can build on something. So uh, we were teaching in an experiment, we were teaching students who didn't know anything about coding, how to code. And they all got this same uh, little lesson. Then they were given a uh, a problem that involved them using some of the rules, the logical rules that they had learned, but also required something they hadn't been talked about, hadn't been given. And uh, then they were allowed to go to the internet and find out what that missing thing was. But the, And the students who really profited from that were the ones who had had just a little bit of an introduction in some class to uh, not the code that they were, not the language that we were teaching the coding in, but just a little bit of introduction to coding and the idea of, you know, working with uh, 
programming. So they, uh, and those people really profited from it. And the other uh, participants who hadn't had any of that profited a little, but not, but significantly less than the others. So, but that's very hard to figure out. And that's one of the um, features that probably I think determines really effective teachers from ones who aren't so effective. And that's an, we have to somehow give them that, those tools to try to um, somehow be able to better judge what the background or what the, what the knowledge of this student is right now that I can use to build on. But, you know, it's hard to do that in a class of 35, 40 students. Exactly. I, I, see, I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure it is. You know, oh. um, because, you know, we keep, in the, in the United States in particular, we keep on talking about personalization and individualization. And the fact is, you know, most of my teaching was done in classes of 35. And just getting students just to brainstorm, you know, just do a think pair share. But before you actually let them talk, just, you know, write down everything you can remember about photosynthesis. Just those kinds of techniques. They're not perfect. They'd be better if you were one-to-one, -one, but they work pretty well in large group settings as well. So I think we can do that. And we, we often, I, I think we try to let the, the best be the enemy of the good. And we say, well, if you can't personalize and individualize, then we, you know, anything goes. And I think we can do a lot better than we're doing right now in terms of these effective strategies. You know, just like, like Stephen Pan's work on, on pre-testing. Yes. Yeah. And to give them, like we have, we have another graduate student who's, who's, uh, do, do, who's focusing on uh, cooperative learning. Right. And what she's finding is what you mentioned, is that if you don't give them a script or you don't structure how they're going to cooperate together at all, then one person takes over and so forth. But um, if you can, and these scripts can be pretty easy. Like you were just saying, write down or everybody has to, like if they're trying to answer a question, at least write one sentence why they think, what they think the answer could be before they start their group discussion. Skin of the game. <laughs> You know, you are talking about the students going through a process and I'm thinking about the teachers themselves because in order for them to be able to do um, professionally those, um, to apply those strategies, they have to go through a process, which um, in my context, it begins with those ideas that comes from the cognitive science of learning. And, and then, and, and I'm kind of happy to, to see that these discussions are more lively these days uh, about they have to practice in a simulation or in a, on, in a dry or on, um, and then gradually go into the, into the classrooms and, and, and practice more uh, before they get uh, really good at actually applying all those uh, complex, you know, it's, it's very complex in, in a real world uh, scenario. So um, I always think about the same processes for teachers too. And the fact that we have some strategies that we know that work well for experienced teachers, um, yeah. beginner teachers have to go through the same process that we are familiar with from the science of learning in order to get um, professionals. Or Run, run a teacher preparation program in, mm -hmm. in London. One of the things we realized was that we were actually expecting our teachers to do crowd control before they learned to actually teach. So we actually took our student teachers 
two student teachers with uh, four school students and we'd, they would meet together every Monday and they would actually do this kind of micro teaching. And then the rest of the Monday would be spent debriefing that experience. But that whole process of learning how to explain, how to prepare, how to plan before you learn how to manage the, the 25, 30 kids in the classroom, I think was a very powerful yeah. um, idea. And, and one is still not very commonly adopted. We still accept, expect teachers to control a class of 30, you know, before they've actually learned how to explain things to, to individual students. Hmm. And trying to do both things at the same time. It's, right, it's yes. been my experience as a new teacher, all those nice things. I, I, I don't even get to begin to think about them when I yeah. try to teach. I'll just add, I think there's some like, look, I'll call them moderators in this conversation around teacher affect. Right. And so like we, if, I mean, how many of us have ever been in a classroom and you just want to lose it? Right. You know, like I, can't, like, I cannot be, I'm just going to, I cannot do it. I just can't be here and put a, con a content aside it's that delivery and that skill, you know, at, um, at bringing children on a roller coaster ride and, you know, evoking, you know, one of the things that we teach is we call it emotionally intelligent teaching is kind of using the, the research on mood congruency. Um, and, and like saying, so like, if you're going to do a lesson on the Holocaust, you probably don't want to be like smiling about it. right? Oh. You, you probably want to like think about, you know, the experiences and then how do you bring people in that? If you're going to have your students write a letter to the senator about climate, you know, um, change, um, you probably don't want them to be calm and content and tranquil and peaceful, right? Get them activated to be thinking about the injustices because it's going to help them be more creative in that process um and we just find that that kind of thinking around emotions being the, a, a driver of of learning um is just it's, it's far it's a foreign language actually for most people we've, we've had interactions with a with a mathematics teacher in alabama just one of the poorest states with the limited background and somehow that teacher of all things created teaching advanced placement calculus course created a sort of climate where these students just wanted to be there extra hours this and that and exactly performed so well on the on the standardized test that the results actually got sort of questioned so people, how could that be? And it, so it's it's quite remarkable what um, some teachers can achieve. <clears throat> Are you? And I, I think a lot of that, Mark, probably has to do with a lot of the skills they have are more in your domain to make you know somehow the students want to have this kind of achievement and 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 see themselves. Yeah, I think it's like they're, you know, you're attentive to the facial expressions, the body language, you're using your vocal tone wisely. You know, you're just you're you're strategic about the particular climate you're creating to maintain the engagement. I mean, as we know from research, right, it's hard to stay engaged for eight hours a day and six hours. Yeah. You know, I was just talking about this with 100 principles and it's like, you know, I got you for two hours. Um, you know, we're asking, you're asking your teachers to teach all day and your students to be, <laughs> and you, and funniest thing ever, funniest thing was that 
I went around and like, what's your strategy for getting through the morning? They really came in like looking like, honestly, they were like burnt and tired. And um, and the number one strategy was present. I'm going to be present. And then I pushed them. I said, well, is that really a strategy? Like, you know, what does that even mean? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much loving the mindfulness work, but like, seriously what does it mean like to be present and then all of a sudden they're like yeah it's kind of hard to be present like so what's the actual strategy for you to be present you know when you're looking at your phone or your whatever it might be and then all of a sudden we started having a rich conversation around self-regulation and co-regulation you know for the in, in classrooms and schools but it's not intuitive well i think the other thing is that i Related to this, I find the work of David Geary on biologically secondary and biologically primary knowledge very helpful because, you know, we are, as human beings, storytelling animals, but some of the stuff we need students to understand are not very well conveyed by stories. So I think we have to be, uh, I find it quite useful in, work, in my work with teachers is to, mm-hmm. is to ask them, you know, what kind of thing is this you want your students to be able to do? Is it something like being good with other people that we are fairly kind of evolved to do or is it something like solving quadratic equations, which right. we definitely not evolved to do? Because I think those re- require very different approaches to teaching. And yes. often you have a teacher trying to use the same approach to teaching to, to everything. Yeah, and I think that's where it falls down. So first decide what kind of thing this is. Uh, and then, only then figure out the appropriate pedagogy. The other thing I would say in relation to what you're saying, Mark, is that I think many teachers find it very difficult to vary the emotional tone. So there are some teachers who just don't like having any connection at all with their students and others who want to be their friend. And I think the hard skill for many teachers to acquire is that professional distance. You know, I care about you professionally, but I'm not going to be your friend. That that seems to be quite a difficult position for many teachers to adopt. And I think personality, too. I was like one woman uh, at this thing I was doing this morning. She's, I mean, more extroverted than you can even imagine. (laughs) You know, and I'm an introvert. And so I'm like, I'm just letting you know, if you were my teacher, I'm like against the wall. Like I can't breathe <laughs> in your classroom. <laughs> and maybe I'll be underwhelming because I need more, you know, I want to go to a coffee shop and just like chill and have a conversation. But that's, you know, Matt, you know, being able to navigate that your high energy, you know, way of delivering content may not work for everybody. And how do you kind of yeah. modulate is I think super important. And it's, you know, it, it matters so much what the kind of context is. I remember at, at Michigan, almost my first year there as an assistant professor, I had, I had done some teaching at Stanford and small little thing, but but here's a 350 students in an auditorium. And I remember afterwards walking back with the TA and I said, you know, how, how can it be? I mean, there, there's, there's students out there putting their head down to take a nap, pulling out the daily, you know, like, what do they, they think? I'm not a person. I'm on TV or something. But that actually, on the way back, I thought, well, if it's performance somehow, then how do I get better at that? You know, like, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to change that. So, so what are all the skills you need? in front of you know an auditorium of 300 students what what kind of things can enhance engagement in that context but but the hard thing is making sure that that engagement drives the content you yeah. all know the dr fox effect where students will constantly 
rate as more engaging and more knowledgeable people who yeah. give upbeat presentations but often they remember nothing of the content of that yes often the, the, the lower the lower energy presentation actually leads to more learning so i think that you know we have to be aware of, of this by the way i mean i i attend a meeting of a working group and they have a rather interesting policy for adults no computers and no phones you're yeah. sitting at a circular table there's no technology there at all that's really interesting about making people present, you know, and you know, if, if, that, if that's needed for adults, maybe we also need it for kids as well. Connected to that, we have a challenge, maybe mostly in Swedish classrooms, I don't know, but uh, people who produce computer games online, they are quite good at using the brain's reward system. And yep. our students, they are extremely skilled at sort of shifting screens really quickly. When I observe in my own school in the classrooms as well, when they, the the teacher goes to the student, they see them work on the right screen. And as long as they go away, they shift the screen and they continue with the computer game. I was a few weeks ago in LA visiting schools and I could see the same when observing there as well. Even it looked, it was uh, really good teachers, it was a good lesson, but still some of the students, they were playing. Uh, so how, how can you win over <clears throat> the computer games? Or take away the computers then? Constrain the environment. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that... We, There's we, laboratory we... evidence that um, not only does... Uh, if I'm, you know, playing a game while you're lecturing to me, that I don't learn very much, but all the people around me who might not be doing that are yeah. also learning as much. distracted by that. Yeah. And that's why the pedagogies of people like Eric Mazur are so powerful, you know, just 20 minutes into a lecture, just ask a question where every student is expected to respond. And, you know, Eric Mazur likes using these electronic voting systems. I prefer finger voting, one for A, two for B, three for, you know, because it's public and people can see you've got the answer wrong. So just having students understand that, you know, 20 minutes into this lecture, I'm going to be asking you a question that you don't really want to get wrong. I also use it when I'm assigning reading for my master's course. So here's a chapter on the differences between Piaget and Vygotsky. The next session, my session is going to begin with me asking you a multiple choice question about what is the most important difference between Piaget and Vygotsky. And it's just having that kind of incentive to actually do the work, because otherwise you're going to look embarrassed in front of your friends. Very low tech, very simple to do and, and very powerful. I'm curious. Some of, some of the work on the on the hook thing, you know, where you where you yeah. like going to pull out as every you got a little bucket there with the sticks with students names and you're going to yeah. pull it out and ask that student the question that that creates a, a sense among students that um has, has good effects on the level of attention in fact i i used to do that when i used to lecture a thousand teachers in preparation in the University of Education in London. And I would interview some of them afterwards. And I said, did the fact there was a one in 1000 chance of you being selected to respond to a question, increase your engagement? And they said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One in a thousand chance, it makes a difference. Hmm. Another way to go, I think, is the learning asynchronously. For example, my course have shifted to uh, almost 50% asynchronously. So, uh, and and each session is very carefully built and it has a structure, it has um, a task very well defined. They have to do things or, so this is something that also improved their engagement because they felt 
that they have the choice when to learn and how long it take them it takes them they really really like it but then i'm very um uh, deliberate about what i want them to to do and this really helps to um to make things um, work and on top of that next time we meet we always begin with whatever they've been uh learning at at home so i felt that if you do digital learning right then really we have a lot of tools to uh, improve learning yes I mean, people often, often ask me about the flipped classroom and i say it's it's great it's just not very new i mean like the history teacher who 200 years ago said go home read chapter six we'll talk about it tomorrow so I think that you know, I think that the thing for me about asynchronous learning is let's make sure that we do face to face the things that can only be done face to face. Right. Let's reserve that time because so much of what happens can be done offline asynchronously, and we're not very efficient about that, and we end up using a lot of face to face time for things that can be done better asynchronously. I think that one problem is that, for example, in the um, academic teachers. Uh, they realize that they really have to plan those asynchronous units. And then we come back to all these uh, pedagogic uh, principles that have to be applied. And uh, it's actually something that I like about going digital because uh, people realize, and, and the same goes for the recent uh, AI um, revolution or whatever it is. And it's the same. People realize that they have to go back and think about how the human brain brain works and what we have to and how we have to challenge it specifically. Um, mm -hmm. So this is where I think digital. I think that the, the digital world uh, reminds us of the importance of a good all uh, the good old pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Although we have found in our all of our training became virtual for obvious reasons, and. Um, that the the rates at which people show up have gone down astronomically. Mm -hmm. People are just not as motivated, and uh, we're going to have to go back to in person trainings because people just don't get through it. Not just they just don't have the they don't feel like being on the computer as much as they you know we were forced to do it. I'm really curious to know. I don't know this research, but I I know it from my own experience in terms of what people can handle in terms of content these days. And what I mean by this is, you know, we used to do these like three minute videos, four minute videos, and now research is showing like 40 seconds max. People are just going to not, they're just really people not going to be watching content for that long. And I'm curious if any of you have seen any of that. Uh, and just because of people being on social media and, you know, between Instagram and everything else, like basically the capacity to actually stick with something for longer periods of time is there a good reason to show that that's diminishing i i don't think that the human ability is diminishing that people have different habits and i i think that in education it's our uh it's our role to i don't know um to teach them how to learn from longer periods of time so on one hand i'm happy that um some limits are put to to lectures okay because one hour like video lecture is usually very long and it's really good if a lecturer is uh, asked to do uh 10 or 15 or 20 minutes it's it's, it's challenging in a good way uh, but then i would expect my students to learn from longer videos the thing that i would do for example is i would present them three 10 minutes um, videos with some activities in between. And I'll let them, I, I give them the opportunity to stop to do something else and come back. And they report 
that it it is really helpful. They say, okay, I needed a rest. I've rested and I came back with with new uh, motivation. Um, so I think that we have to, I don't accept the, the idea that the attention span has diminished. Uh, yes, the culture has changed, but um, cognitive abilities are still limited in the same way. The, the ability is there, but the, but the practice of, of focusing has dramatically shifted, I think. But this yeah. is why we have education. I'm very really skeptical about a lot of that research saying that kids can't concentrate for more than 10 minutes because the kids that, that I've worked with can concentrate for significant amounts of time if they're interested in what they're doing. If they're interested, I know. So, so you know, I, I, I just don't I just don't trust a lot of that research. Those seem to be very, very simplistic findings because they try to come up with a global figure irrespective of what the students are concentrating on. But I think I do buy the research of people like... Um, Anders Ericsson on deliberate practice in violin playing, for example. You know, I think, you know, you can't do lots of violin practice if you're doing it properly. I'm also aware of, you know, when I look at um, interpreters in events, you know, this idea of simultaneous in interpretation, you know, they, they don't seem to be able to do that for much more than 20 minutes. I see mm. people, camera operators, you know, yeah. that intense focus, really focusing, it does seem that people kind of get very, very kind of lacking in focus after about 20 minutes. So I think there are certainly some limits there. The question but is where, how I mean, those limits are to, um, to, to what happens in classrooms. I'm just saying, for example, in our work with parents, because we try to work with parents, if we create a two minute video, we look at the, we can see just the dropout rates are significantly higher than a 40 second video. It's like yeah. literally and so that's just like putting any content out in the world and saying, here's a new, here's a strategy to help your kid learn how to do whatever. And if it's two minutes, 50% of them don't get through the two minutes. Um, and I'm just, I'm just fascinated by that. And I don't know what the longitudinal data would show that two minute video would have been watched fully 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But I do know they're not watching it now. No, I think, but I think it's mostly volition rather than, you know, it's, it's nothing to do with the content. Yeah, it is. It's I don't just, know. I don't think it's it's just, yeah, exactly. Alan Schoenfeld showed this in math education uh, 30 years ago. He showed that one of the reasons American kids didn't do very well is because if they couldn't solve a problem in five minutes, they gave up. Whereas students in the Pacific Rim countries just assumed this was a hard problem that was worthy of yeah. their thoughts. So yeah. there's these exactly. belief systems that, that come with the, um, the, the activities that are completely unrelated to the cognitive capacities of the individuals. It's just People choose not to think about this stuff because it just seems like too much effort. Right. We've been doing some research on, you know, students are fond of, um, if they have the video of the lecture, to go through it at double speed or something like that. So what we've been doing is looking, well, what are the consequences of watching a lecture twice at the double speed versus once at the normal right. speed? And so on and long term and short term and it, it, it's really pretty interesting um it's raised a lot of interesting things about types of information and so on but it, it does it gets hard to do in actual practice because students can can stop and go and back and forth but but in the experiments we've run it does look like there may be some benefits for um going through a lecture twice at the double speed versus once. Hmm. 
but my, my guess is that would depend on the information density yeah. of the recording. So I mean, I'm often told when I'm presenting to teachers that I talk very fast. Mm. And, I, and I've looked at this and I, I don't talk very fast, but what I sometimes do is I talk too densely. So it's the information overload that, that's, that's bugging people. And so mm -hmm. there are some people who I can happily listen to at double speed and I miss nothing. And there are other people who I struggle to actually keep up with when they're talking at single speed because what they're saying is so dense. Um, so I think, you know, this, this kind of research is very difficult to do because there are so many variables involved in the, in the information yeah. density um, right. of the presentation. It's that part of knowledge piece too. Yeah, true. Density, density is a function of, right? Yeah, I know, I, yes, I know what this person is going to say, which is interestingly why I hate video, because you can't browse video. You can't sort of skim through video and, and see, oh, yes, I know all, all this. So, I, you know, I often ask to prepare videos, and I, 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 and I can't stand watching videos myself unless it's a transcript there, uh, because it, the information density is so low, you know, I can read quicker than I can listen. And, you, and I can't skim. So uh, I, I know I'm old-fashioned in this way, but mm -hmm. uh, I think that too often... But if it's video over which you have control, then that's probably very different. And I think that's one of the pluses yeah. that come out of this uh, sort of uh, hybrid kind of thing, where we have some in-person contact with our students, but we also have uh, the, uh, the remote or where they're doing stuff on their own. If we give them the ability, for example, like say you give your lecture and then and you give it live and then you but you also record it. And that recording is available to all the students to, as Bob was saying, they can go through it as fast as they want. They can back up. Uh, oh, now I understand what is you what they mean by an interaction. I was just it just seemed like crazy when I was in the lecture, the live lecture. And they can, uh, I think that giving them that agency has been a very, uh, very helpful to a lot of students. And I think particularly students, uh, we have a lot of students for whom uh, English is a second language. And it's, they in particular appreciate that ability to both come to the live lecture and then to have a that recording that they can uh you know, skim through, go through fast the parts that they understood, slow down on the ones they didn't, back up, hear it again, and so forth. This and is a point McInerney makes in, in England that, in fact, some kids welcomed the um, the switch to videos because they could actually, as you said, Elizabeth, they could stop, they could pause, they could rewind. And I think particularly in mathematics, a lot of girls don't like the teachers who go too fast and the ability to actually stop and rewind or rewind is a very old metaphor, uh, to replay um, was was crucial to their understanding. So I think you know, we shouldn't treat this as a one-way process. Sometimes this kind of thing can be can be very powerful in terms of putting students in charge of their own learning. Okay. We see the same in diverse classrooms, that they really appreciate those videos. Can I take a question in a little different direction, just because uh, I know that Mark uh, won't be with us more than a couple of minutes more and it's a question that I want to ask to him especially but all the others as well but uh, in Sweden and in many countries mental illness among students is a growing problem uh, I know it for sure in Sweden 
and the COVID pandemic can made it even worse. And we experience challenges with the mental illness. It goes down in age, younger and younger kids. And of course, that is bad for health, but also for learning. So uh, do we have any ideas? What can we do in our schools to help our kids feel well? A big question. That's a couple of hour conversation. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm starting my next book and it's on, on regulation. And um, I was reading an article that I wrote in 1997 early there was a kind of the beginning of my career and um when i was reviewing the literature on adolescent mental health and i feel like i could just cut and paste it to, to today i mean literally it's like teenagers are lonelier than ever before you know there's more depression there's more violence there's more i mean it's just like literally it's the same exact story we're saying today as we were saying 35 years ago and um it's depressing from us, you know, from my perspective, and it's depressing for me. Going back, you know, it's a little bit different than what we're talking about, but because we are a quick fix society, and that's just the way we are. And we want to, we have a band aid for this, and take a deep breath for that, and do yoga for that, and we just don't take people's emotional development seriously. And I think now it's everybody's it's blowing up in everyone's face, but still, schools are not places where people are trained in how to help teachers develop children's social emotional development. And um, it's my biggest fight. It's my whole career is in that space of, of professional learning for this kind of other side of the report card. But um, until we can, I think, make this part of learning a permanent part of learning, we're just not gonna, it's just gonna, we're gonna keep on trying to do interventions and we know from intervention research is great, but we're not reducing the number of new cases. And so um, that model just is not proven to be effective. And I mean, I have family members who are teenagers and college students who are waiting six months, nine months, a year for therapy or for clinical, um, you know, to meet with a clinician. And, um, and then we have just to I'll wrap up my little speech here on this is that, I mean, recently I was, I won't mention the details, but I was like slammed by a media network, basically saying that I am a social engineer who is, you know, I mean, the, the perceptions of what this type of learning is um, by some people is making it even worse in certain states where if you're a child who is LGBTQ, you have no voice, you have no one to speak to. Um, and so um, this is why I think this space, my space that I work in, it's not just about teaching and learning, it's about systems. It's a Bronfenbrenner model. It's a bioecological model, right? We need to have a society that cares about how children feel, like really cares um, and understand the science. And then we have to infiltrate that you know, across the ecosystem from politicians to decision makers and all the way down to the student. That's my speech for today. <laughs> I just feel that we have the same long-term, short-term paradox thing that is 
uh, interfering with everything that we are trying to do and pushing for longer term goals and processes is something that we have to, I don't know, learn somehow how to do effectively. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be interested to see research from instrumental music teachers. Have they seen a decline in students' ability to concentrate in practice on the guitar or violin or piano? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm skeptical about the claims about worsening mental health. And I'm not saying that they're they're not true. I'm just saying I just know how hard it is to do good quality work in this area. Because often people's responses are conditioned by their current environments. So, you know, I'm I'm open to that. But I I am, I think, now convinced by the work of Jonathan Haidt. Um, I think we have a real problem with social media. And, you know, I think I'm ready to say we should... You have to be 18 to be on social media. I think it, it is such a huge problem that causing such a great deal of unhappiness. I think something something draconian needs to be done because it certainly yeah. is affecting the lives of a lot of children uh, very, very adversely. And I can't well, see... We to, I can't see I mean, any... Go on. No, no, what I wanted to say is that I agree 100%, and we've got a lot of research in that space as well. But... We can't deny, at least in the United States, you know that there um, that certain children's lives are valued less than others. Yeah, that's um, true. And that is that's pretty heartbreaking to be a kid in in some of our states right now. And and until we can rectify that, um, I'm not sure much progress can be made. I think we have to work on that because I don't think we're going to make you know, the kinds of things that you're alluding to are not, I mean, they are basically generational shifts, I think. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, on that on that point, I'm quite heartened by how quickly gay marriage got accepted and how the legalization of cannabis, I thought those would be generational shifts as well. So you know, I think it's quite interesting. Sometimes things change very quickly and sometimes things change very slowly. Or so they change and then they get... Then you get and they get... I know, I know. But as Niels Bohr said... The prediction is hard, especially about the future. So yeah. <laughs> I, I just now, now know that I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for that uh, speech, Mark. And uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, and you're right. It's uh, it's a subject for a for a discussion on its own, for sure, and a really important one. I will agree, though, with Dylan. I just say one last thing: is that. The data, it is complex to understand mental health because of the assessment work and all that's done and how it's measured and things of that sort. And we are in a society now, I think, where um, we have no granularity in our language around mental health. And so that becomes problematic because disappointment is despair and being uncomfortable is an anxiety disorder. And so we don't really know, like we have to really like have that continuum clarified so people are really using these concepts similarly so that we can get clear, you know, a clear understanding. Yeah, we get this inflation all the time. So I'm often asked to do presentations on trauma-informed pedagogy. And I point out that actually everything I know about trauma-informed pedagogy is to like, it's just really good pedagogy, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and, and so people often want to inflate these things to signal a crisis. And often that, that language gets in the way of taking appropriate action. Some of these things we think of as new or exaggerated problems. It's interesting from that standpoint to go to class reunions of the type that Elizabeth and I have gone to, you know, in 25th year and 40th year and stuff. And then 
people open up about what they were going. You as a fellow student of theirs had no, you thought, well, this is all, you know, the kind of things we're talking about that they're recent developments, but you hear what certain students said about what they were going through at that time. And then people almost have an urge to reveal that and talk about it mm-hmm. after that long period and say, wow. I didn't yeah, well, we certainly, we've certainly come a long way in terms of stigma, right? The you know we have if, if there, every single pop star and actor, right, is getting people to be safe and try to be safe that way to share their mental health challenges. I just think we haven't gotten very far with like going beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> so you know we don't have the the strategies piece is missing. It's just the putting it out there, but the support systems and the systems that need to be in place is where we need to work. Now I have a totally another question again. I have heard Dylan say that an important role for every school leader is to stop teachers from doing important things to make them do even more important things. And I totally agree on that. So if let's say that each one of you is the principal for a new school. You have one school each in the age of 5 to 15 years of age. And you know that teachers often feel insufficient. They don't have the time to do everything they want to. So as a principal, you must make priorities. What would be the most important priorities for you as as principal for your school? And Anyone can start. You can get 10 seconds to think and then go for it. I'll start talking just to give other people a chance to start thinking. I don't think your question has an answer because I think that the answer has to take into account social and cultural context in which those decisions are made. So, for example, if you're working in a school, particularly it's like a private school, where parents expect to see tick check marks in students' books, then changing that is going to be very difficult. So for me, the framework I, I, I talk about if there was one more hour in the day, what would you do with that extra hour? So then I ask people, if there was one f- one less hour in the day, what would you do less of? And then I say, if they're not the same thing, make the switch. So if you, if you spend one more hour a day planning better instruction and one less hour of day spending less time grading, then there's nothing to stop you from giving that hour from grading to planning instruction right now. And that applies to your personal life as well. People often say, I spend less time at, at work. Fine. And if you have more time, spend more time with my kids. Right. Make the switch. Take the hour from the office and give it to your kids right now. So I think the, the important point mm-hmm. here is there are never going to be more hours in the day. What we can do is make sure that we're spending every hour that we're spending in a way that we're happy with. When you look back and say, was I happy that that's what I spent the time on? That, I think, is the best we can do. And I, I think um, a thing I would try to emphasize is short of people having some kind of actual organic disorder, our capacity to learn is simply amazing. And the kids who are failing in schools often have some other domain of their life, automobiles, music, whatever, where they have almost an encyclopedic knowledge and would be teaching you. So... Somehow, if you can convey that there's this 
we come equipped with this amazing capacity to learn, basically, mm-hmm. all of us, short of certain organic damages. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> and that we can learn in multiple domains. I mean, there's all this thing about people avoiding uh, mathematics education because they didn't do well on one test and they say that that's not, so mathematics is not their thing and they look for somewhere where they'll be good without any effort. And um, so I think how we do this, I'm not sure, but just simply to convey to every student that, that they've come equipped with this amazing potential to learn. Good. Yes, I would. I would uh, try to tell my teachers. Um, so we're, we're. You did say we should be principals, right? Yeah, yeah. And you can de- decide your conditions. Your your ideal, your profile, what you want to focus on. That's totally up yeah. to you. As That, the principal, you decide. You, I want you to concentrate on giving your students a toolbox for all for all the effective ways that they can learn no matter what it is they're trying to learn whether it's uh uh you know like a new motor skill or whether it's uh information or concept concepts of different types whatever it is and of course in that toolbox i would put things like what we talked about desirable difficulties you know spacing your you're learning rather than massing it, doing a lot of self-testing or retrieval practice. Um, and uh, and and also, you know, I tell would tell them to give your to let give your students the tool that before they read a chapter, go to the back of the chapter. I think most textbooks have questions then about the previous chapter. Just try to answer those questions first, then go back and read it. So just give them these kind of tools that they can use no matter what it is that they're trying to do. And um, and also, I think I would try to get to purge them of this idea. I don't know how it got into our educational system that learning should be fun. If it's not fun, then it means that you are not learned that that subject matter just isn't for you. Um And that, are you hear students saying, well, if I were interested in this, I could learn it. Mm-hmm. But you get interested in things that you learn something about. So that interest in learning is sort of a two-way street. And uh, you you often get, get interested and have fun in topics, but you have to learn something about them first. And uh, so I would try to let have them go away with that idea that, Uh, just because learning seems difficult, it doesn't mean that this subject is not for you. It just means that you need to apply some of these tools to master it. And then it's going to get more interesting to you and also uh, seem easier. Good. Uh, maybe I'll jump in. I apologize. Yeah. I have to run to get to a train. Yeah. Just say the question one more time. <laughs> Question, you are now a principal for a new school and you can decide yourself what conditions, what type of school and what would you like to focus on to make your kids at the school successful? I think everything people have said is very important, obviously. I also say I've got some new studies that we're publishing that 
basically show that the emotional intelligence of the leader is highly predictive of the culture and climate of the school. So that teachers just feel a different way when they're in a school with a emotionally dysregulated leader. They feel unappreciated. They feel less respected. They feel um, more annoyed and they feel more inspired, more connected, more appreciated when they have a leader who is higher in those skills. So I'd say try to be the role model, you know, for creating the best possible culture and climate. I, I really apologize. This is such a fun conversation. I feel um, awful that I have to jump off, but I have to get back to New York from, I'm in Wilmington, Delaware, of all places. Yeah. <laughs> just before Efrat will conclude all of this, I just would like to say that uh, I had sky-high expectations and you met them all. So thank you so much, all of you. But Efrat will have the last word here and, and give her principle. I apologize, Efrat. Nice, lovely to meet you. Yeah. Thank you. Have a safe travel. Safe travel. Safe travel. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Um, so, yeah, my mind uh, wanders um, around things you, you said and also about the problems that I see in, in our schools and in the context that uh, I see. And this is um, and things that I would like to improve as um, ways to empower teachers and give them a better quality uh, professional development. So I think that I would go with something that... Um, let let teacher select the kind of professional development that they want to uh, go into and it must be something that is relevant and applicable to their own classrooms it might be the science of learning or social emotional learning or maybe a coaching program or whatever something that they feel that they can immediately um, apply in their classrooms and empower them professionally so i think that this is something that i would go for also interesting and think what a great group of teachers sorry principals you would be together <laughs> such an amazing group of school leaders uh, does anyone of you want to have any final words reflections comments otherwise we conclude the discussion i think i'd like to say yeah. something and, and I, i'm not i'm now more optimistic by the possibilities of getting cognitive science into the day-to-day -day work of schools that I have been at any point in my professional career. I used to run a teacher preparation program and I would go to the psychologists and I would say to them, what is there that our students need to learn? And it was all about personalities, it was about psychoanalysis, analysis. There, there was just nothing that was useful. And I think right now we have so much really high quality cognitive science work with some really promising findings But some real issues, as, as as Bob said at the beginning of this conversation, real issues about what does this mean? What's the grain size? Yeah. What does it mean to interleave? What is it, you know, when we distribute the practice, what should the spacing be? And I think this, it's just a really exciting time for, for this field with teachers and researchers working together to try to find ways of improving education. Right. Great yeah. summary. Great summary. Amazing. I totally agree. Great last words. And thank you so much, all of you. And I think that we, we will stop the recording.